Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we talk to industry leaders and learn about the risks and rewards behind the success. Despite our name, we won't be playing any music during this podcast. We have instead chosen to talk to those people who are closest to our castaway, their friends and former colleagues. And this in itself creates a soundtrack to their career. Today we meet Rick Lewis, founder and chairman of Tristan Capital Partners. Born in Boston, Rick is a graduate of Dartmouth College and Harvard Business School. 20 years ago, he took a risk on coming to London and it certainly paid off. Rick was named the most influential Black Britain in the 2019 Powerlist 100 and has served on the boards of organisations such as London First, the Ambassadors Council of Grassroots Soccer and the Institute of Imagination, to name a few. Outside of work, Rick can be found hanging out with his golf buddies, cricket superstars Michael Vaughan and Shane Warne, and business turnaround legend Philip Janssen, the CEO of BT. One of his great passions is helping underprivileged children access quality education, in particular through his own charity, Black Heart Foundation. And recently, he has launched the Impact X Fund to invest £100 million in businesses run by or for Black female and other underrepresented entrepreneurs in Britain and Europe. Rick, thanks for joining us today. You've been a busy guy. Thank you, Emily. It's a real pleasure. So what I'd love to explore are those times when it could have all gone wrong. And I'd like to unpick the one risk that had the biggest impact in making you who you are today. Yeah, it's so hard to determine which one or which one of those sliding doors was most influential. But, um, you know, when I think back in hindsight's, you know, 2020, Mm. I think it probably is my attending Dartmouth College. And the reason I say that is that for me, it's what expanded what I call my aspiration bubble. When I was at Dartmouth, what I experienced, the people I met, what I saw, what I was exposed to helped me understand that I could do just about anything. I felt like I was qualified to do anything Uh, You know, the people that I hung around with, played with, befriended, I realized I didn't have to aspire to be like them. I already was like them. Mm. And if those people were the sons and daughters of the captains of industry and arts and music and business, then I wanted my share. You wanted in. And and I think that's fed a lot of what I do now, Mm. you know, in my non-work life in the community is that I'm trying to expand the aspiration bubble for young, talented, creative people through my Blackheart Foundation, through the Blackheart Scholars Program. You know, the, all these things link together. So I think that probably is one of the places that had the biggest impact in my life. Yeah. We spoke with Peter Aldrich, founder of AEW and arguably the architect of real estate investment management. Let's hear what he has to say on a risk that you took. Our firm used to have every year in the winter, we'd have a big retreat. And the first night, they'd always have a sort of talent show or some fun skit or whatnot. And he, during some musical stunt, picked me up and twirled me around over his head. I think to pick up the CEO and do that for a young man in a company is pretty risky. So picking up the CEO and spinning him over your head, what were you thinking? (laughs) Well, obviously... You know, it's a credit to Peter because he created an environment where people are allowed to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And we were off-site at a place where, you know, we could put the business aside and really get to know each other. And so, yeah, perhaps I was overzealous or rambunctious. But 
I think in that moment, I realized like everybody's in the right mood. Mm -hmm. And so I sensed that it was going to be okay with Peter. I sensed that it was okay with the rest of the firm. I mean, what Peter doesn't say there is that turned into a really great party. And it might was, it was probably the precursor to some of the parties that we now host in our industry, the Tristan After Dark Party or the Curzon Underground Party. You know, I think what I learned, I mean, this is why Peter is truly one of my greatest mentors, not only what he taught me about real estate investment management, about risk management, but also sort of how to be yourself in, in the industry. A lot of the culture that we created in Curzon and Tristan is directly related to what I learned at AEW and through Peter. Well, look, your gift at throwing a party is renowned and you find commonality amongst people that are different. Let's have a, a listen to Matt Dawson, the former rugby player. Have you been to any of his parties? Oh, yeah. Or, I mean, that, that is... If you look at the incredible mix of people that are at that party from all over the world, making the effort, family friends and golfing friends, and no one was sort of sat around looking like they didn't really want to be there. Or, you know, I, I strolled in and I saw two senior chief execs in the city putting you know, flower necklaces around their neck and covering their face in glitter on a Thursday night. You, know, you just think, this is not a normal bash organised by a normal guy. Not a normal bash organised by yeah. a normal guy. Yeah. There's a compliment in there somewhere, but yeah. uh, it's true. There's a sense of fun. And yeah. uh, and I wonder, do you bring that to work with you? Well, I think I do. I think um, one of my great passions is really people. You know, I really like bringing people together from different areas of my life and getting them together and making sure that they're friends. I mean, that's a real passion for me. You know, it, it's about how do you enjoy the journey? Mm-hmm. And we all go through so many things that are difficult or hardships. It's about how do you focus on the opportunities to curate a better, happier, more fun existence for yourself. I just like doing that for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You've spoken before and you've been in our uh, Boho Partners book club about uh, mindfulness and uh, the importance of being present and being in the moment. Again, is this something that uh, has long been a, a, an influencing factor to you? Well, I'm a work in progress. I'm clearly a work in progress. You know, people that know me well know that I struggle not to multiprocess. Mm. I mean, I have both a gift, ability, and probably at some level a curse that I can do two, three things at once and do them well. And so I have been long focused on trying to narrow that down to just be doing one thing. Matt Dawson talks about uh, a phrase of yours, you got to stay in your lane. I love it, but I'd love you to expand on that. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, I think the key to being good at life is knowing what your personal superpowers are, what things you do well and exceptionally and maybe better than other people, and being really comfortable with those things you do well and, and trying to be less upset about the things that you don't do well. I don't mean that you shouldn't aspire to to be curious and acquire more skills, etc. But I think success in whatever endeavor comes from you understanding what you're good at and then teaming up with people that are better at some of the other things. And I think when you do that and you're comfortable with that, it's contagious. I think authenticity and integrity are very attractive. Mm-hmm. So I think you know it allows you to accomplish your business objectives. It allows you to accumulate and conglomerate people um, 
And I think his version, you know, sometimes I say, hey, life's tricky, stay in your magic, baby. And I think he's also heard me say, stay in your lane, which is like, you don't have to be everything to everybody. Yeah. And the world is a crazy making place. It's demanding. It's fast paced. It's, you know, social media gives you the illusion that you're supposed to live life to the fullest and every moment is magic. We understand intellectually that that's not realistic. Mm. But subconsciously, it can start forcing you to think that you're less spectacular than you are if you don't stay to the two, three, or four things that you're really, really good at. Yeah, this FOMO. Thing. Yeah, fear of missing out is a horrible thing. Yeah. But there's a new one, which is JOMO, which I love. Which is? The joy of missing out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's something that is, it's underrepresented. I think, you know, you get to a stage of life and you realize like the sheer unadulterated joy of just not doing something mm -hmm. and having some quiet time or missing the party, missing the call, missing the whatever it is and feeling like I'm okay with that. I'm being in the moment. Yeah. Let's take a step back and, and, and talk inspiration. Why real estate? I think it's... A, it probably highlights my perspective as someone who had a smaller ambition bubble at the time. So I knew when I was in university that I wanted to be in real estate. I mean, I think I went to university thinking I wanted to be an attorney and then quickly dissolved, you know, in the first or second year at Dartmouth. But by the time my senior year, when I was doing a senior interview for, you know, the basketball team when the newspaper was interviewing me at my last game, I said that I wanted to be in real estate investment management so I could give my my co-conspirators, co-captains um, a job. And mm -hmm. I was joking about that, but I but I did know. But I think it was really just that I wanted to be in, there was something that was really attractive about being in financial services investment management. Because for me, how I grew up, that was three steps above what I had experienced or anyone in my family had experienced. So it was aspirational for me. Mm. When I look back at it, I feel like I don't have any special love for real estate. It is the vehicle that allows me to express myself. What I really like is building teams and cultures that outperform their expectations of themselves and of their clients. And I think, realistically, I feel like I could have done that in a bunch of different areas. I could have been a coach. I mean, I could have, you know, done it in a different industry. Could have been a coach. I think it's interesting because talking to Matt Dawson, he likened your your leadership skills to some of the greats, to Martin Johnson, to Clive Woodward. Sport has obviously been a huge source of inspiration to you in business. Let's have a, a listen to Jim McCaffrey speaking about this very topic. Ricky Lou, that was his nickname, yeah. man. Yeah, Rick Lewis, Ricky Lou. In Boston, if you played ball and you didn't have a nickname, you know, you either didn't have any friends or you weren't any good. So uh, I was Jimmy Mack and he was Ricky Lou. And, and that's how that's how we uh, we met each other. The way he played basketball was very much the way he carries himself in life with uh, great intensity, but with grace. But there is a competitive streak in there. And there is a, you know, he's a fighter. The guy is super empathetic, you know, super friendly, uh, obviously super charitable, but, you know, there's a competitive streak. Hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a huge compliment from someone like Jim McCaffrey because that guy, you know, is a warrior. You're going to play basketball, you're going to go into war, you want him on your side. So for him to say that he thought that I was competitive and he could see that side of me, we played a lot of ball together at, at a very high level. 
And so we competed and we were teammates. And it's great that life comes back together and you can be in the same industry, in the same building, in the same space. But I, I can't tell you how huge a compliment it is to hear Jim McCaffrey tell me that I was a fighter because anybody that knows Jim McCaffrey or ever played ball with him knows that he died trying. Yes. And how are you at, uh, at losing? Yeah, I'm not great at losing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't want to lose. I, I think I can keep perspective on it, but, you know, I feel like both of my daughters are elite athletes, and I used to say to them that, you know, game time is your reward to yourself for all the time and effort you put in in practice. And so for me, when I played, I wanted to get the best out of that for me because I, I did all the the drills and the sweat and all of that stuff. And so... Losing just feels like I let some piece of myself down. But, you know, after you walk off the court or the field, you know, I can regain perspective about where it fits in the priorities of life. And so I think, you know, I'm up there in the top tier competitors, and I think that carries over into business, too. I can keep perspective, as Jim was saying. I think I can be graceful in loss, but it doesn't mean it doesn't leave a scar. You have a, a photo in your office of uh, Muhammad Ali and um, there's something he, he said that speaks to what you tell your, your daughters. The fight is won or lost far away from witnesses, behind the lines, in the gym and out there on the road, long before I dance under those lights. How much of a, an influence has sport played on your approach to business? I think that, that sums up a lot of things. I mean, you know, you get out there on game day or pitch day in business or, you know, you're making a presentation or a talk and everyone sees your performance on the day and says, wow, he has a gift. He's so good at it. What they don't see is the grind. Hmm. They don't see how many times I've gone over my notes. I've practiced it. I've talked to colleagues and just tried certain things out. I'm trying to feel like how the audience will react to things. So same thing with sort of a business presentation or, you know, on the golf course, you know, among my group of crazy friends, you know, Michael Vaughn, Matt Dawson, Shane Warren, you don't know how many times we go to sleep, like practicing rounds, like literally fall asleep thinking like, okay, fifth hole, I'm going to hit this with a fade, right? No one sees that when you get out there and make it look somewhat effortless. Let's talk a little bit about charity, because clearly real estate is the day job, but uh, you've created a couple of extra day jobs in all that you do. So let's hear a little bit from uh, Jim McCaffrey on the subject of charity. On a uh, personal level, uh, what I've learned most from him is when you have the ability to give without the expectation of receiving, it's an amazing quality. And he's proven it and done it over and over and over again, whether it's through the Black Heart Foundation or the other charity work that he's done. To me, the things that he does that people don't know about are more important and more impressive than the things that he does that people do know about. And he does use his, you know, his public persona to help raise money for these great causes, but he does just as much, if not more, behind the scenes and doesn't expect credit and doesn't expect things in return. And I think to me, the stuff you do when people aren't looking, which matter the most, and I think that defines very much Rick's personality. Tell me about the joy that charitable work gives to you. My work in the community, especially on the pathways to education for, you know, talented, committed, under-resourced kids, comes from 
a place of responsibility. I mean, it really does. I was imbued with a responsibility to do something about it because of what I got. Someone nudged me in the right direction and changed my life. But also my parents, I saw how hard they worked and what they had to sacrifice to just put myself and my brothers in the position that we could be to have a bigger, more fulfilled life. And same thing with, you know, my grandmother. But there's just that perspective that like, wow, I live in this now, in this time and era where anything is possible. When I think back to my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, I've often talked about this. Like, if you do that comparison and think about what it would be like to put yourself back then, you can't possibly be anything but energized and excited that you get to live now with the possibilities of now. I don't mean that there are hardships in the world, but now is a really great time to live. The second thing is that, you know, I didn't really know this, you know, when I started embarking on the stuff that I do, that it would be so personally rewarding. You know, when we give out a scholarship to someone who's been working hard and can't figure out how to live their dream, I think I've said, like, it feels like I'm playing Black Santa. Like, I'm changing somebody's life across the table. There's been moments where, you know, we we meet with the, the scholar and say, look, we're, we're going to pay for your education at Cambridge, Oxford, Bristol, Leicester, et cetera. And they're overwhelmed. I can see them. They're tearing up. And they're like, and then they call them parents or their mother and, and they're on the phone facetiming and, and i'm like it's tuesday you're crying i'm not gonna cry here <laughs> like, this is not this is not crying tuesday but it's i mean it's you know you realize you are changing the vector of somebody's life the other part that's really rewarding about it is that all of those people now feel imbued with the same responsibility that i did so we, there's a huge ripple effect that we're creating and i see them they're like what does the foundation need how can i be an ambassador or ambassadress you know, what can I do? And even if I can't do something right now for the foundation, I'm going to do this for somebody else. Yes. And so, you know, I'd like to say that I had planned all of that out, but some of it is what you discover when you're on the path to doing something fun, but important. Yeah. But but the thing that I would say is that there are unspoken joys that you can discover in it. And this isn't me being altruistic or, you know, asking people to drink the Kool-Aid. It's, it's I'm just telling you about my own personal discovery. I didn't know it would be this cool this fun, this rewarding. And I didn't know that, like, effectively that I got the chance to create an army of people that felt like they were helped and they were going to make a difference. Those are all things I discovered along the way. And they're out there for other people, too. Well, let's pick up on that and talk about people. And um, the first question is, who who inspires you in in real estate? Um, you know, I mean, some of the people, you know, I mean, some of the people you've talked to, I wouldn't just say it's in business, it's in business and life. I like people that can perform at the highest level that also have a perspective on their bigger life, about who they are as a person and who the, how they impact the people around them in whatever way they do. Yeah. It can be in charity, it can be in business, it can be in family, but they have a perspective that's a little bit bigger than the one thing that they specialized in. Jim McCaffrey's a great example about that. He's really modest. You know, what he was just talking about with me, you'd have to look really hard to find the footprint of what Jim's doing because he doesn't want to tell you about it. But I know, you know, a few of us know or handfuls of us know. What I'd love to ask you about is when you've taken a a risk on someone and maybe as you think about that, I'd love to play an example of someone taking a risk on you and you then passing the baton on. Let's hear from Peter Aldrich. We set up a subsidiary company and tapped Rick, who was still a very young man, to be the head of it. And he chose employees from the company at various places. And as the office manager, 
he chose a young man from the mail room who delivered mail. Now, that was a very daring thing. And, of course, he had it right. He had seen something in that individual that, you know, was special and that allowed him the panache to run the inside workings of the office. Can you remember that? Yeah, very well. He's still very much part of my life. He's an uncle to my daughters. We've been friends for 30 years. He started in the mailroom. We became allies. He was the office manager of my first business. He has been instrumental and, you know, a strategic go-getter in several ways. When we moved in to both Curzon and Tristan, he helped us. I mean, he he lives in Boston, but he's a guy that just knows how to get things done. Mm -hmm. He's character. He's charismatic. I mean, probably most of the people in my life have met him. He was at that party. He was in the room oh, when no, you were there, too. I yeah. missed him. No, you didn't. You just didn't know it was him. But you, there's no way you missed him. All the glitter. Yeah, exactly, yeah, because he's a, he's a character. But, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because I didn't even think about it that way. But, you know, recognizing talent and taking a chance on him because it would have been unconventional. But what I just knew is he knew how to create value. He knew how to make a difference. And he was also someone that in a business that didn't look like him, act like him, wasn't like him. He wasn't afraid to be outspoken when he knew he was right. And I think, look, in a business that needs so much more diversity, we're only going to get there with creative ideas, with people thinking outside of the proverbial box. Tell me who took a risk on you. Yeah, Peter Aldrich took a risk on me. When I joined AEW, I mean, you know, yes, I was a good student. I went to an Ivy League school, all of that. You know, almost every employee at the firm, I think it was every professional employee at the firm, either had their already had their MBA or their JD, so already had their law degree. And I was, you know, I, I don't think this is untoward, but I, I wasn't a guy who looked like the rest of the firm. Mm. I was a 6'10", skinny black guy that, you know, yeah, I mean, I might have had the right educational pedigree, but I didn't fit in. And Peter just decided he saw something in me. I was actually going to go back to business school. I was on my way to accept a place at Harvard Business School. I was applying to Harvard Business School and going through that process. And he said, I think you are telling me that you want to go to Harvard Business School and when you get out, you want this job. He said, I'm prepared to give you this job right now and see how you'll do. And so, you know, Peter deserves a lot of credit. He's done this a lot of times in his life very successfully and taking a chance on people. And he saw me at that right moment. And again, in business, that changed my aspiration bubble. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was one of the leaders and the pioneers in in real estate investment management, AEW was one of the leading firms in the 80s, and so and I, and I was right at the core of it. So, you know, you can't say I didn't know and wasn't growing. And I mean, the fact that I came over here a bunch of years later, having written the business plan for our European expansion, was a testament to what I learned in the U.S. I mean, you know, I, I like to think I'm smart, but I'm not a genius. I just used a lot of the playbook that we used in the U.S. to create our business here, first AEW Europe and Curzon Global Partners, and then laterally... Tristan, 10 years ago. It was another risk, though. I mean, you were accomplished career-wise. You could have stayed put in the States. What prompted the move over? I I think, you know, somewhere in my DNA, I was never afraid to put myself in a position, whether it was my experience at Dartmouth, maybe it was in me, you know, as a cheeky little kid, whatever. But I wasn't afraid to to do something that was different. And um, maybe it's just the fact that I'm different in makeup. You know, I am 6'10", I stand out, I'm a black guy in what was, you know, predominantly all white elite business world. So I, you know, I've been comfortable for a long time helping people to get comfortable with me as I spread my message or ask for something or try to make something happen. 
So moving here was just another one of those things. Moving over here 20 years ago, like most of us, I thought I would be here three or four years. I'd start the business, turn it over to someone else. But we picked the right time and the place to make change. And so we stayed here and the story hasn't been so bad. Yeah, well, it's it's not a bad place. Tell me about the traits you admire in, in, in people. Um, I, I think, as, as I was saying, for me, honesty, integrity, and authenticity are, you know, probably the utmost. I'm attracted to and admire the people that I feel like can live comfortably in their own skin mm-hmm. and tell the truth about what they feel. But the people that are really are my friends are the people that in private can really talk about who they are and their feelings and I know what their values are and their values overlap with mine. Yep. You know, they love their kids to death. They care so much about their family. Their friends are their friends. They'll do anything for them. And even though the three people, you know, that we referenced here, you know, Michael Vaughn, Shane Warren, Matt Dawson are very different people. They all have that similar quality. And I think from the outside, people could miss that because they're superstars. You look at their actions, their feats, et cetera. But I know them as the people that like, that is what drives them. That's who they are as a person. And that's why we get along. Let's have a listen. Matt Dawson talking about um, that very same topic of, of loyalty. Yeah, he has that outgoing, very personable characteristic, incredibly generous in his spirit and nature. You, 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 you want to do it for him. Yeah. You don't want to let him down because you know he's never going to let you down. He's going to you know, go bowling through the front door first hmm. and will expect you to do it for him as well. He'd run through walls is essentially what, uh, what Matt was saying about you. Yeah, and I think I think that's true of all of us. You know, I feel like you know, Shane lives halfway around the world half the time, and it's it's not just them. And I don't want to say these are my only yeah, three yeah. friends, but of my friends, you know, my buddies in New York, the guys I played ball with, etc. They travel. You know, they they'll they'll be anywhere. You know, it's, as a matter of fact, some of us are going to get together this weekend, and you know, I, I I tell them like, look, it's important that we get together, and they're like, we're coming. You know, and from New York, like, no problem. Like, we're there. Let's look to the to the future. What's next for Rick Lewis? I'm a work in progress, so it's more of the same. Every from day my is a school day. If you're open and you're curious, there's something to learn or experience every day, and mm-hmm. I feel like I'm still doing that. You know, I mean, I I don't underestimate the number of decades I've had on this earth, but like you know, there's no reason to stop now. And you know, almost anything is possible. I mean, like that just inspires me. That like, I mean, it's one of the great learnings I've had all as well is that. You can do almost anything. I mean, as a kid, you think, okay, I certainly couldn't do that. That's for certain kind of people or only certain kind of people create a foundation or do this. It's actually not true. I mean, it just takes time and effort. How inspiring is the Institute of Imagination in that regard? It, it's one of the things. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's four or five things in sort of my community life that, you know, spark that. But the Institution of Imagination is focused on on feeding that. It's mm-hmm. that, you know, imagination is that, the root of every human endeavor. You know, it's, if you can't think about what you might want to do or might want to be, how can you be, mm-hmm. right? And so the Institute of Imagination, we're, you know, we have already created a place and we're in the process of creating a better place where children and family can experience that on a guided basis in all areas, in the arts, the sciences. It's, you know, for them to explore 
reimagine themselves and the world and their place in the world, they say like 70% of the jobs 50 years from now haven't even been created. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, like, so if you can't imagine where you're going or where the world's going to be, you can't even fit into where we're going in the world. The world is changing at such a rapid rate that if you can't find a way to tap into those parts of your brain that can think about what doesn't exist in front of you, then you're not going to be equipped for where the world's going. And talking about imagination, how does the real estate industry do on that topic? Hmm. Yeah, that's it's it's. It's an interesting one. You know, I look at some pieces and I feel like there's some pieces of our industry that are really anchored to some old practices. I think it's changing over time. But it's weird because there's a dichotomy here. On the other hand, I feel like we probably have some of the most creative people in any industry in the world. I mean, creative in good ways and bad ways, sometimes some self-harm by some of the things they do. But in terms of innovation, creation, color, personality, our industry is bereft with some of the most significant and creative personalities that you'll find in business. Mm. And so I think we are creating. And I think we're not constrained as much, and I want to say this in the right way, you know, equities and fixed income, you know, are dominated by the public markets at a speed where, you know, you have to do it a certain way. I mean, you can cut, slice and cut things, but real estate has a freedom because it's a little bit more of a slow-moving asset class mm-hmm. where the creativity, you know, can can go into, or one can apply the creativity to it. I don't see as much change as I think could happen in our space mm. in terms of new products, hybrid products, etc. But I think that's coming. Yeah. What are the big challenges? Uh, the challenges are the ones that you go through all the time. I mean, right now, the challenges are geopolitical. I mean, mm-hmm. what's going on in the world? You know, I'm from two countries where <laughs> the leadership model is being questioned significantly. I often joke, and I think both of my countries and my passports are fighting for the low moral ground in terms of leadership right now. We need to get you an Irish passport, I Yeah, think. perhaps so. <laughs> Accepting it right now. Yeah, thank you. Um so there's geopolitical, there's, mm. you know, and that's having an effect on capital markets. I think, you know, our industry, you know, is enjoying a long extended cycle because of where the global economy and global capital markets are. And, you know, I think our space is really interesting, but we're headed towards another cycle change. And I'd like to see us move forward from the cycle change and fail forward because there'll be some failures rather than go back to the old way where the cycle breaks, there's death and destruction, everyone moves away from our asset class because they're scared about the excess and the mistakes we made. And so we just go back into another cycle of recreating what we did. Mm. I like to see us push forward, and push on. And we talk to our clients a lot about that, which is, you know, rather than beat yourself up when we get to the end of the cycle, let's expect it and figure out what do we do to take advantage of the fact that we're going to go through a cycle. This is a cyclical business. And the down cycle, how do we protect ourselves from major loss and how do we take advantage on the upswing? Yeah. With a nod to our namesake, have you a piece of music that's like your anthem to risk? So there's one piece of music I listen to every single day. It's eight minutes and 23 seconds. It's Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, you know, the wake up ringtone on my phone and I listen to it then or I find another time in the morning to listen to it my my daughters joke about it. They're like, really? Are you listening to that again? Um, but it just reminds me to come back to the same place and renew 
the day again, which is like, look, there's a lot going on. And for those eight minutes and 23 seconds, can I actually stay in one place and just stay listening to the music? The second track that I listen to, and this is the one that fires me up, is, mm. is Golden by Jill Scott. Mm-hmm. And that's just a reminder that, like, you know, where I am and on my path to living my best life and living it like my life like it's golden. It's just a great anthem that, like, you know, any time I play it just puts me in the right mood. As the podcast suggests, we are marooning you on a desert right. island. You've spent your best part of your career in property. So when you dream of escaping this island as a real estate investor, where are you going to go? What are you going to do there? What risk will you take there? I'm going to disappoint you because I don't have just one place. Yeah. I have multiple places. So <laughs> so I, I love people. So if it's with a lot of people, I want to be on the beach. Uh-huh. So, you know, I want to party, a big, great beach party. Um, if it's just with great close friends, um, so I'd love to just be ambling about in bars and restaurants and museums in Florence. I mm-hmm. think it's one of the greatest cities in the world. It's lucky that we only live a couple hours from it. And so I do that in a second. So you'll have a lot of time to think when you're on this island and I want you to take what you've learned. I want you to reflect. Um, I want you to think about any regrets. Hmm, that's a good one. I think, um, I think as we were talking about before, a stage of life, you, you start thinking about like what you spent time on that you know just wasn't as productive as you wish it was. And you know, there, I, I have two frames of mind about that. One is that, like, I wish I knew what I knew now, back then. But then I look at it and I go, look, those those steps, those choices I've made were the necessary shaping that made me or make me the person I am now. And I'm not sure I'd have the perspective that I have now without going through those hardships, business or personal. The and diamond much, is not polished without agitation. I think you're right. I yeah. think, you know, I think if you if you don't bounce off a couple walls and make some significant mistakes, you know, mm-hmm. I can think of a couple, probably not all that I'm willing to talk about here, <laughs> that I think like, God, I really wish I hadn't gone down that road. But the truth is that like that's what's made me who I am now. I can't enjoy all of what's ahead of me without having the perspective about what went wrong. Yes. Well, I'd love you to listen to Peter Aldrich because he speaks about a risk he didn't take. And um, I think you'll find this interesting. Rick was running my international companies and he came to me with a very bold program to expand into markets we were not in. But he looked to me to capitalize the whole thing. And this was going to be millions of dollars. And I just wasn't ready to do that because I was nearing the end of a a career. Was I prepared to to really go full board to finance that operation? And I told him, no, I I just wasn't prepared to make that commitment. And he very smartly said, all right, I'm going to find someone who will. And it was certainly my failing that I didn't say, okay, whatever you need to do, it is yours. How do you respond to that? Oh, that's nice of him. I mean, I think, you know, his perspective is really clear. We're just at different points in his career. Peter had accomplished a bunch of things, had done things all over the world, and he was looking to put his landing gear down, not to move on to other things. He's a very curious and energetic person, and since then he's done a bunch of other things since he's decided to be out of you know, day-to-day real estate investment management, but I was ramping up and taking off and he was coming down and it was probably the right decision for him. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have done it with him, 
but it was the right decision for both of us yeah. for him to say, look, look, this is just not the right stage of life or the right element of risk for where I am in my life and my career. And he was dead right. So talking about risk, he, like, he had a very accurate view of what risks he was willing to take. There can be great situations that could be productive and lucrative, but aren't the right thing for you to do if you don't have the energy to take them on. And I talk about that with our team all the time, which is like, you know, there's a lot of pieces that go into making something successful. And it isn't just the raw materials. It's yeah. about you've got to be able to bake the cake the right way and market the cake and sell the cake. If you were to speak to your 18-year-old self, your 21-year-old self, write yourself a letter, what would be in there? Well, yeah, the great example is that I, I do this with my daughters. My daughters are 16 and 19. And, you know, I talk to them about how amazed I am that almost everything is possible. And, and that's coming from someone who had limited resources and limited connections. There are kids now that have, and without putting any pressure on them, that have a lot of resources and a lot of connections and a lot of know-how. And what I've said to them is, you know, follow your curiosity. Don't get caught up in what you're supposed to do all the time. If you dream something, give it a try. Like, like you're at a stage of life where what's the cost for you trying something that doesn't work out? And you'd be amazed at how much you can actually accomplish in this world if you just dare to do it. It may be fairly simple, but like what I've done with the foundation, what I've done with two or three businesses, like I couldn't imagine that as a kid, but all I had to do was dare to do it, dare to create it, dare to do the hard work, dare to go on the path. And you look back and you're like, wow, that wasn't as hard as I would have worried that it was. Mm -hmm. Well, Rick Lewis, Ricky Lou, thank you very much. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to, to have you. Thoroughly enjoyed the chat. Thank you, Emily. This is great. Good luck with it. Thank you. Desert Island Risks is brought to you by Bohill Partners, the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry. For more information on this podcast or Bohill Partners, feel free to visit our website at www.bohillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks.